Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. What if you had someone in your life who was a titan, a titan of real estate? Well, I have a very special guest today, something a little different than what I normally do on the show. My guest today has had not one, but two titans in her life. The first is a real estate titan. Now, you may have heard of the Sheraton Hotel chain, massive hotel chain. Well, it was started by Ernest Henderson. And Ernest is the father of my guest today, Mitzi Perdue. As you may know, the Sheraton Hotel chain, Sheraton Hotels and Resorts, is an international hotel chain, and it's owned by Marriott International today. As of the end of 2018, Sheraton operated 441 hotels with 155,600 plus rooms globally. But that's not all. Mitzi was also married to a business titan as her husband, and that titan was Frank Perdue, who was the president and CEO of Perdue Foods, a major chicken, turkey, and pork processing company in the United States. And in 2016, their annual sales was a whopping $6.7 billion. Now, the reason Mitzi is on the show is because in both cases, if you have family members generationally that put enormous effort into creating and maintaining strong value-based cultures and building businesses literally from scratch in the early 1920s, then I'm sure they have some lessons to share. And I know Mitzi has had many lessons learned. So with that, I felt that it would be great to learn what helped build these massive companies and we could maybe learn from some of those lessons in helping us as individual investors and in us building our businesses and our real estate portfolios. It's my pleasure to welcome Mitzi Perdue. She is a businesswoman and author of the book, How to Make Your Family Business Last. Her family began in real estate 180 years ago with the founding of the Henderson Estate Company, and her father continued in real estate, founding the Sheraton Hotel chain in the 1930s. In continuing the family tradition of real estate investing, she invested in agricultural land in the 1970s. And if you've tasted wine from Robert Mondavi, Kendall Jackson, Gallo, Sutter Home, or Toasted Head, you may have sampled grapes grown in her California vineyards. Mitzi, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm honored to have you on here. And uh, you're obviously friends with uh, Mark Victor Hansen. How long have you known Mark? Actually, it's quite recent, probably half a year. Okay. And we did co-author a book together. So I've gotten to know him reasonably well. And the more I know him, oh, the more in awe I am of him. I mean, he's one class act. It's one golden nugget after another that comes out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? In fact, I can tell you that when he's writing, oh my goodness, he just, unlike anybody I've ever known, and most of my career has included writing, I never knew anybody who could just have completely formed sentences, paragraphs, thoughts. I mean, he's what an awesome mind. I'd love to know what his IQ is. I'm sure it's pretty high. I first met Mark back in 2003, late 2003 here in Orange County, California. And it was at a real estate investing event that I went to that was put on by him and his partner at the time, Robert G. Allen, who's one of the grandfathers or godfathers, grandfathers of uh, nothing down real estate investing. And he actually comes from oh, yeah. my hometown, my home province, actually in Canada. And now he lives down in San Diego here. That's kind of what relaunched me back into real estate investing. So I met Mark back then. And I remember he was just a very tall, big person. He reminded me of Tony Robbins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, good. Well, Mitzi, you have a very interesting family background and you're very interesting too. I've looked at your books on Amazon and actually I need to buy them all because they're pertinent to me right now. So can you tell us a little bit more about you and your background and where you're at? I want to learn more about you. Oh, I'd love to. What a privilege. I had unusual circumstance in my life. I got to watch my father, who was the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. He started it in the 1930s, and we kept it in the family until his death in 1967. So I got to watch 
well, who was really in the end a real estate titan because the hotels were owned by the family. And I got to watch him and ask him in real time, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And in addition, he would always answer questions that I as a little girl would ask him of, you know, why did you do this? That's half of of my unusual circumstance. The other is I got to marry Frank Perdue, and he's not well known on the West Coast, I'm going to assume, but Frank Perdue in the 1980s and 1990s, he was known as the absolute iconic figure in advertising because he started out as a chicken farmer, one of 5,000 on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and somehow, actually not somehow, I know the answer, he grew to be a somebody who went from employing nobody to employing 20,000 to sell in a good year in a hundred different countries to become a household name, whether it's in Tokyo or Moscow or Beijing. So I got to watch two extraordinarily successful people. And then my degree is in management. I have a master's in public administration and undergraduate in government. So in the case of Frank Perdue, I had sort of a background to ask him questions, and then I could sort of compare and contrast the success of my father with the success of Frank Perdue, and it left me with a whole lot of ideas of what makes success. Interesting. Wow. So you've been tied to two very big, well-known Titan names. Yeah. Interesting. So you've learned a lot from these people. Well, let's start with your father. Your father founded the massive Sheraton Hotel chain back in the 1930s. And this was during the height of the Great Depression, which, you know, a lot of people don't really stop to think about because it lasted from about 1922 to 1929. And it was a time when people were really running away from investments of all sorts. Credit was very tight. Banks weren't lending. Banks were in trouble. Nobody wanted to invest in the stock market anymore and they didn't want to invest in real estate. But you're, Father ultimately owned 400 hotels and he employed over 20,000 people at the time of his death. What takeaways or lessons can we learn from his experience? I mean, you're coming from this from a front row seat firsthand. Oh, I have loads that I that I'm just eager to share because I think that they apply to today. Because today, you know, it's a time of uncertainty. We're not really sure when this is going to end. And even the travel industry, good Lord, it's up against something similar to what my father was up against in Sheraton began in 1933. And you mentioned that people were running away from real estate, but within real estate, they were particularly running away from hotels because, you know, there weren't conventions, there, people weren't traveling. I mean, it was so like what it is today. And father was a contrarian. He bought one hotel. And he made enough of a success of it that with the profits from that, he bought another and another until at the time of his death, 400. And so as a kid, you know, it was just clear as could be to me that, that father was a really successful guy because, you know, when we traveled, we were staying in presidential suites and our country house had a ballroom that holds 200 people. Wow. <laughs> okay. So as a little girl growing up, it was not invisible to me. That father really had something. So, you know, I'd ask him, how did you do it? And I would just love to share a particular story that I think is applicable to today. Please. Thank you. Well, he told me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, the first thing he'd do on the day that he had taken possession, he'd invite all the employees to come into the hotel small room. And there could be 400 people. There could be 800 people. And father would know, at least during the Great Depression, that he was addressing a really demoralized group because every one of them is probably thinking, I'm going to be fired. And they're thinking, you know, at the height of the Great Depression, it was 25% unemployment. And if you lost your job, you know, your chances of getting another were, how about close to zero? And it probably meant the bread line. It might even mean hunger. So he knew that every single person in his audience, you know, who's looking up at him as he's about to speak. So the first words out of his mouth were, I want every one of you to keep your job. Imagine the relief that they must be feeling. And then he went on to say, I want you to keep your job because nobody knows this hotel better than you do. And nobody in the world knows your job better than you do. 
And I'm here to provide you with the resources and the support and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you're going to see in a matter of months, this is going to be the most successful hotel in the region. It's going to be the most popular, the best served, most financially secure. And you're part of the team that's going to do this. Well, you know, imagine you've been at the depths of despair and suddenly you've got this vision that you're going to be an inspiration to others. But that's only part one of the story. Part two, I want you to jump ahead 24 hours and these same employees, they get to witness something extraordinary. And that is there are dozens and dozens and dozens of like decorators, plumbers, electricians who are just trooping into the hotel to refurbish it. But they don't go to the areas that the public would go to. No, they're going to the employee dining rooms, the employee kitchens, lockers, showers, the rickety old elevators. And so I asked my father, why did you spend money in areas that you're not going to get your money back from the paying public? Why is your first money spent refurbishing the employee areas? And he said, because he wanted to communicate in a very concrete way just how important the employees were. And so this was a way of signaling to them how much he valued them and how important they were. And that carries out something he said all his life, that the success of Sheraton at every level came from the employees. But that immediately, to my mind, brings up the question, well, how do you get the employees to go the extra mile to have all that commitment that it would take to make the success that he had? And now we come to another part of the story. And I guess this is, we're approaching the end of the story. But I asked him, your first words were telling people that they could keep their jobs. Why didn't you say, do a good job or something? Why was it just freely given, you keep your job? And he said that when you want to motivate people, there are three ways you can do it, or three major ways, at least in his mind. And he said the first two aren't good, and the third is superb. The first one, he said, I could have stood up in front of those people and I could have said, shape up or you're fired. And that probably you'd get some compliance They'd probably work harder. They, you know, they don't want to be fired. But he said intimidation, and that's what this first approach is, intimidation, people do it grudgingly. They do what they have to do and not one little bit more. He could have tried the second flavor of persuasion, and that is bribery. He could have stood up there and told them, now do a really good job. And guess what? There's a bonus in it for you. There's a raise in it for you. He was against bribery also because he said people work for the bribe rather than something bigger. And then on top of that, you keep having to raise the ante. Once you've given them a raise, well, what have you done for me lately? You know, you you have to keep raising the ante. So he was against intimidation. He was against bribery. So what's left, according to my darling father, was inspiration. He said that the key to success is inspire, don't require. And he said his goal was to give the people who worked with him a better vision of themselves. They are not waiting table or tending bar or carrying suitcases. No, they're part of something much, much, much bigger. They're building the most successful hotel in the region, something that will show everybody else that in these tough times, things can turn around. They're part of a team. They're part of a cause. And that's the kind of inspiration that his approach to leadership provided. and. It worked because he was famous for, if you started working for him, you probably stayed working with him for life, and you probably gave it your all to make it a success. That's amazing. There are so many good messages and nuggets and lessons in that. I mean, we could literally end this episode here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Well, let me jump on to my late husband then. Yeah, share the story of your late husband. All right. Frank Perdue started out as one of 5,000 farmers on the eastern shore of Maryland at the end of his days. Like my father, he also employed 20,000 people. Wow. And like my father, he also said, 
that the entire key to the success of Purdue Farms and Purdue Chicken and Purdue Grain was the people who worked with him. And I got a real front row view of one of the ways that he did this, because like my father, as far as I could tell, he spent enormous amounts of effort communicating to people how important they were to him. And when we first married, and we're back in 1988 now, we had just come home from our honeymoon. And keep in mind that I grew up in the hospitality industry and you sell everything by hospitality, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, right. Well, we've just come back from our honeymoon. And I tell him, Franklin, I think we should entertain every single person who works for Purdue Farms in our home. <laughs> right. Yeah, he said there's 16,000 people at the time. No, that's just not possible. And I kind of pretended that I didn't process that he was telling me no. And I said, yeah, and I think we should entertain them 100 at a time. And he's saying, no, that's way too many. And I said, let's start in six weeks. I think we could put it together in six <laughs> weeks. And, and we'll start with the secretaries because they can tell everybody that our parties are fun and not scary. Well, we went round and round with me planning this thing and him saying no. But then gradually, I could tell from his body language that, you know, it, he was not thinking, gosh, is my new wife set down from Mars. He began sort of maybe taking the idea seriously until finally he said, I like it. We'll do it. And he was hesitant, I know, to do this because Frank was basically a shy man. And the idea of having hundreds of people in his home each week, because we did it three times a month for almost 17 years, the idea of having you know, huge numbers of people in his home, yeah, it was just way outside his comfort zone. But when, when we started, it turned out to be a fantastic success. And the reason that, that Frank you know, changed his mind and was willing to do it, it was one additional way of communicating to people that they're important to him. And at these parties, you know, he used to pay attention to every single person that would have them in groups like the sanitation workers, the auditors, the truckers, well, just everybody. And I think we did entertain, you know, way more than 10,000 people. And at these parties, I would sort of stand back in awe at the following picture. 100 people in our living room, a great big long buffet table. And Frank was one of the people waiting on his employees. Wow. He would serve them himself. I mean, it, talk about servant leadership, but can you communicate more to somebody that they're important if you invite them to your home and you wait on them? And then at the end of the evening, he'd do something that I thought was just so respectful and creating so much employee engagement. And that was, he'd tell people, you know, whether you're an accountant or, I don't know, a live hall, <laughs> there's who, again, whoever were our guests that night, he would tell them what was going on in the company. He'd, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He'd tell, you know, we lost the such and such contract. Oh, but we've got this new breed that's coming on or, you know, whatever was going on at that moment, he would tell them just as directly as if they were the board of directors. And imagine you, you're somebody who maybe you're a secretary or something and or administrative assistant. And you've got the most current information from the person who knows it most. And then at the end of the evening, you know, he stands up in front of a hundred people and he'd give some version of the following. I know that the company wouldn't be the success it is today without you. So here's, you know, the big boss thanking them. Yeah, that's amazing. So one of the clear messages from both of these stories is that you should treat people with respect and ask people like build their self-worth and, and build morale and show your respect and treat them like a, an equal, like a peer. And I thought Frank was a totally egalitarian because I used to have the extraordinary privilege of going through some of the processing facilities or plants or grain mills with him. And it was just the neatest thing because I'd watch, you know, these are people who are like, I don't know, on the line working with chickens. And Frank would never have the attitude, I'm the big boss. No, it was asking how they were doing and are they being treated right? And 
the number of names that he knew was just, I mean, I bet he knew the names of many thousands of the employees there, or we call them associates. Yeah. For the big boss to come through and, you know, he's not walking there with his nose in the air. No, it was more, you know, we're all part of a team and I've got my role and I really value your role. And he was an egalitarian. Yeah. In fact, I've been told that, I mean, I can't know this, but I'm going to go with it anyway, that there are many companies where the big boss wouldn't walk through the factory floor talking with individuals and asking how they're doing. Right. No, I see. And we often would have have lunch at the at the cafeteria and just sit down with people and talk. I loved it. Yeah, that's incredible. Those are great stories. So let's go back to your father for a moment here. You know, he could have picked anything in terms of real estate investing back in the 1930s and being a contrarian, maybe, you know, that's the answer to my question. But why did he start with hotels? Was that just the low-hanging fruit or the greatest opportunity or what people were most scared of at the time? All right. My impression is the Henderson Estate Company had begun 100 years earlier. Let's see if I can do math in my head, 120 years earlier. So I think that he had real estate in his blood. And, you know, it certainly has done well for the family. So I think that, you know, his antenna were sort of headed towards real estate. But I don't think he ever expected to have a hotel company. In fact, do we have time? Tell me how much time I have, because I have another story about him that people might find encouraging. We can go for another 20 minutes or so, total. Okay. Yep. All right. I don't need that much time, but right. on the subject of why did father pick hotels? I mean, this is contrarian to the nth degree, because it wasn't just hotels. Everybody was running away from them. But father had an interesting personality quirk, and that is... At age 26, he just hadn't found himself. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And he went to a career guidance counselor, picked somebody out of the phone book. And he spent a whole day with Tess. And at the end of it, Johnson O'Connor, this guy from like 19, I don't know, 30 or something, told him, Mr. Henderson, you're clearly a bright fellow, but you have the least human relations skills or people skills of anybody I've ever come across. (laughs) Bad advice. (laughs) You need to have, well, actually it ended up being superb advice, but not for the reason that Johnson O'Connor intended. But Johnson O'Connor's recommendation to father was, you would make a really good scientist. You have a logical mind. You belong in a laboratory in your own cubicle where you don't interact with anybody, but you can use your intelligence maybe to invent or solve scientific problems. Well, father took this as a challenge because he reasoned, and we've even discussed this, that the most important kind of ingredient for success is the ability to get along with people. And here it had been pointed out to him as clearly as anybody could ever do that he was deficient in this. So to my mind, he spent the rest of his life trying to learn what makes people tick. I know that he read books on it. He took courses on it. He even took the trouble to make friends with psychologists and psychiatrists. Like there was a famous one, B.F. Skinner, who would be a house guest because my father cultivated him. Wow. It's a guy named Eddie Bernays, who seems to be the father of modern advertising. He's also a guest in our house because this was a lifelong quest of, of my father. And he took the Dale Carnegie course, and then he told me, that every 10 years he'd reread it because the information was so important that he wanted it like sharply in his mind. And if you reread something over and over again, you get a deeper and deeper understanding of it. And so father's greatest weakness, uh, that he had the worst public human relations skills that Johnson O'Connor had ever seen, became his greatest strength. Because if you're in the hospitality industry, you have got to have... How about a deep understanding of what makes people tick? And he became a public speaker. And I'm going to guess that he interacted with more people than anybody but a national politician. Wow. I mentioned that he was a contrarian contrarian because you know, part of contrarian was that he went into the hospitality industry during the height of the Great Depression. But the other yeah. part was he forced himself to transcend his greatest weakness and it became his greatest strength. Because, I mean, nobody else that I know of at the time was able to motivate people the way he could. 
And I think that's because he studied it and learned it and it was important to him. Critical skill. Yeah, I, I always talk about personal development and educating yourself and never stop learning and being a student. And I think that's very important. And, and this is a great example, a great story of learning not just to develop and build yourself and become a better person, but understand other people. And that's where psychology and social psychology comes in, because the better you can work with and communicate with other people, the further you will get in life, the more friends you will have, yeah. the more effective you become. It just helps you in every aspect and dimension in life. And that's a great story, a great example of, of how you take that attitude and you take that knowledge and apply it positively in your business, your career, your life, et cetera. So that was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, is, you know, what attitude led to and helped him succeed in an industry that everyone else was failing at? I think you kind of answered it though. Yeah. I think that is that he had a deeper understanding of human motivation than his competitors, but he also had some other things. He was a lifelong learner. He was one of his sort of catchphrases was, one good idea can change your life. And he used to put him, himself in the way of getting those good ideas. He'd attend lectures. He'd, he'd read books. He'd, I mean, he was totally in self-development. I can remember even when uh, we're talking like mid-1960s at this point, and computers were just sort of trickling into being used in business. I mean, they had been in the laboratory or military before. But they were just sort of edging into it. And so, you know, here he is like 65 or 68, and he wanted to learn computers. And he actually bought this thing that we had in our living room. <laughs> and, and he would learn programming, and which I thought was really cool that he just didn't stop learning. That's and it. by the way, Frank Perdue was exactly the same way. Frank Perdue, oh my goodness, the research and the effort uh, that Frank would put into self-development. In fact, to my mind, the biggest key to Frank Perdue being a success was at every stage from being you know, a small-scale farmer to being, how about a titan of industry, he had to learn new skills like delegation or, I don't know, accounting or dealing yeah. with numbers yeah. or dealing with politics or, or advertising. At every stage, there were things that he had to learn, and he, he was able to see where he wanted to be and then the steps it would take to get there. And that almost always involved learning. Well, success leaves clues. And clearly, you know, this is a big clue. And that is to continually educate yourself and learn the things that you're weak at so you can better yourself and better your business and better your finances and better your family and better everything else. So that's all good stuff. Let me kind of shift it a little bit towards a couple of investment related questions for you and for your father. Starting with your father. What would you say was the biggest challenge that he had as an investor? You know, just focus specifically on that, if any. <laughs> oh, well, no, there's clearly an answer to that. Give me a second to process what. Sure. Okay, his biggest challenge as an investor, to my knowledge, he put extraordinary effort into researching whatever it was that he was getting into. But he had a head start, which I recommend to anybody who wants a long career investing in real estate. This is part of the magic sauce that, that I think made Sheraton grow. He had a philosophy in a negotiation that he never wanted to be perceived as a shark. That is, he made it, how about a pattern, always to leave something on the table so that the person on the other side you know, came away happy. And his view was it wasn't a good transaction unless both sides were happy. And he was perfectly aware that in many cases he could drive a harder bargain, but he might make less money on a particular deal. But, and this is just so important for real estate, he would always get the best offers first. I mean, let's take hypothetically that a widow has inherited three or four hotels. She doesn't know what to do with it. She's getting on in years. She doesn't want to manage it. So she tells her lawyer, you know, sell it. He's going to go, or he would have gone to my father first because father had a reputation of working extremely hard to make sure that both sides were happy. So again, you know, in any individual deal, he's not getting the best deal, but because he gets the best offers and he gets the pick of whatever's coming up, it puts him way, 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 way ahead. That's what I would call a win-win negotiation, isn't it? Yeah. 
But it's the reputation that he got that was just beyond price. Right. I loved it. I mean, he was a good man. Well, reputation speaks volumes. It's important to have a good reputation because it takes years and years to build a positive, good reputation, but it can be tarnished or torn down in a very short period of time. I spend a lot of time working on my reputation, my company's reputation, and preserving it, not just building it. I call it reputation management. And then sometimes it gets to the point where someone's unhappy for reasons beyond your control and not your fault. And then you have to shift into this mode of damage control. And oh, that's so painful because your reputation is you. I mean, it, it's it is literally you, but it's it's awful close. Yeah, it is. And you know, this happens maybe once a year, maybe once every two years. Uh, I don't like it, but you know, it happens to every business. You just have to deal with it. But reputation is so critically important. But your father obviously put a lot of value and weight on that. So you know, that speaks volumes. Now, you know, you're obviously a passionate believer in, in real estate as an investment. You've invested done well by me. Yes, you've done very well. You've invested in agricultural land here in California, where I'm at. You're no longer here. Back in 1974, as far as I understand, the value of that big investment in land increased 240 times in a 46-year period. If Correct me if these numbers are wrong. So why did you choose to get into real estate? And more specifically, why land? Because <laughs> I can't figure that one out. I have a serious answer and a joking answer. Can I give the joking answer first? Yes, please do. <laughs> okay. I grew up in Boston. Doesn't every little girl in Boston dream of being a rice farmer? <laughs> okay. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay. That's the joking answer. Let's get serious. I was living in California at the time, and my father died when he was 70 years old. And I'm at this point, I'm, I guess I'm 28. And Nobody expected he died of a heart attack. And, you know, today, what I'm about to describe, I don't think would happen, which is that nobody expected him to die. I don't think there was a lot of preparation. I mean, because we thought he'd live another 20 years. So it was very sudden. And so suddenly I came come into a great, big, huge inheritance because we did sell the chain. We sold Sheraton on his death. And, but that meant... <laughs> I think the polite term is a liquidity event. And so here I am, 28, and more money at a younger age than I've expected to have. But one of the values that the Hendersons and the Purdue's also, for that matter, have is we live below our means, mm -hmm. that the money that we have, our job is to hand it on in better shape than we got it to those who come afterwards, that it's what we have now is borrowed from the future. and. So I think it would have been possible for my siblings and, and me to, you know, buy yachts and racehorses, and, but we didn't do it. No, not one of them did that. We all, in one way or another, invested. And in my case, I was living in California, in Davis, California, which has, has one of the world's, I think, just outstanding agricultural colleges. And it occurred to me that I could put this inheritance that I had uh, and my inheritance, by the way, was in three parts. There was a trust for my mother, a trust for my father, and then a third that I could do whatever I wanted with, including yachts and fur coats and racehorses and private jets or whatever. But I didn't do that. It occurred to me, I suppose from having come from a family that had been in real estate since 1840, that my antenna sort of goes towards real estate. And it was just so clear to me that they're not making more land, but they are making more people. So mm -hmm. agriculture, I mean, the logic seemed to me just irrefutable that prime agricultural land would be a good investment. But I didn't want to just jump into it. I wanted to prepare myself. So I spent actually, good Lord, I came into possession of the money in 1970. He died in 67. And I spent from 1970 to 1974 auditing classes, which I was allowed to do at the University of California at Davis. And I'd study as if I was taking it for credit. I'd study like agricultural accounting, rural appraisal, agronomy, just every possible thing that I could to prepare myself for investing in agricultural land. And then when it came time to actually like pull the trigger on this thing and act on it, I've lost track, but I think I investigated 40 different pieces of land. And, you know, something would look absolutely wonderful, but I had a checklist of 
I don't know, maybe 35 different things. You know, was the water supply secure? What were the neighbors like? What was the weed infestation like? Why were they selling? And I have a rule, by the way, I don't know if it's still true, but it it guided me, which is that if a property is good, it's not going to change hands unless there's some extraneous thing like maybe a divorce or a death. So I certainly wanted to know the history and the production. And, you know, over and over again, I'd be so close to buying a property and then I'd find some defect in it. Finally, uh, in 1974, I did find a piece of land. It was ideal for me because it was prime agricultural land in the middle. It was between the Sacramento airport and the city of Sacramento, and it was surrounded by I-5, 880, and I-80. In other words, there was a triangle of highways around it, so the transportation was crazy good, Yeah, but the access was crazy yeah, and it was flat and it was irrigated and it was between a major state capital and its airport. And it should have gone for an absolute fortune. It had a defect in the title, which is there were 23 owners who were quarreling with each other. And they had sort of let the property become weed infested and nobody else was bidding against me because in the end, it took almost a year to clear the title. But I thought, Now, at this point, I've lost track of the years, but I might be 33 at this point. I thought I can simply afford to wait it out. And I got it at a crazy good price. And then I got what felt like the world's best tenant farmer to farm it for me. And it became, it was sort of like my father's hotels. It was one, in his case, one hotel made enough money to get two. In my case, one farm made enough money to get more farms. And it really did. I loved the whole business. So you weren't out looking for cash flow. It sounds like you were looking for an investment to place your cash somewhere to park your capital. And long term, that probably would appreciate, but you weren't looking for monthly or annual cash flow from your real estate investment. This land, I don't look at it as an investment per se in, in the sense that it doesn't generate income or cash flow. But- Land well, actually, land. prime agricultural land, if you buy it right, it was a beautiful cash flow. So you were producing from it. You were producing- I was producing enough to buy more land. Okay. So you did have cash flow. Totally. Yes. Okay. Well, Excellent. remember, I bought it at a crazy low price. Right. But ultimately, you were producing something on it, whether it be- Rice. I became a rice farmer. There you go. You can tell a rice farmer when you see right. one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> That's interesting because most people don't take the approach of getting into agricultural land and producing off the land to generate the income, whether it be avocados, lemons, almonds, or whatever. But that's exactly what you were doing. So you were just investing in real estate in another way. And I like the fact that real estate has cash flow, and that's exactly what you did. So, On the other hand, this is a top-of-the-head guess, so I'm glad I'm not in court and have to say that this is absolutely true, but it's pretty close to true. The odds of whatever just comes on the market right off being good are slim. I mean, I think it takes a lot of research to get the good deals. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true because everybody's chasing the good deals. Nobody wants a bad deal. All the good deals are taken first. And if they're not taken, it's usually the person who knows about it or has it as a listing. They're going to send it to their friends and family in their network, right? Exactly. So the number of ways you can get taken in agricultural land, as I said, you know, I investigated dozens of pieces of property before finding the right one. I mean, the one before the one I finally bought, it had absolutely everything you could possibly want, just the best soil, the fantastic crop records and so forth. But I went through it with a county extension person. And as we were walking along the edge, it was probably 400 acres, and I think it was in prunes. As we were walking along the edge of the property, the guy said, hmm, look at that construction on the opposite edge of the river. What's that about? And so he began doing some research and discovered that the river had, with the last flood, had changed its course slightly in such a way that uh, every seven years, this, I think it was an almond orchard. Every seven years, this almond orchard is going to be flooded. And it has some, there's a particularly noxious weed called Johnson weed that decreases the productivity. And he said, this land might have had a perfect record for 50 years, but it's going to change because of this change in the bend in the river and don't touch it. And yeah, I'm heartbroken because I it was a beautiful place. I wanted it, but 
I'm not going to buy something that's going to be an endless headache every seven years. Yeah. Speaking of which, as an investor, what was your biggest challenge and what was your takeaway from that challenge? Everybody has, has challenges as an investor, you know, especially in the beginning, but what would you say is your biggest challenge? Well, in the case of agricultural land, at least here I have a pot of money from inheritance and I'm in my late 20s, early 30s. I'm wet behind the ears. I don't know what I'm doing. So my challenge was to try to meet as many like mentors and people would help me. That's good. Yeah. And then to take courses and read books and just learn as much as I, you know, at the end of it, I used to, in my imagination, think I could have written doctoral dissertation <laughs> on land values. So I guess my biggest challenge was not knowing anything. If I want to get from here to there, here is I don't know anything. Here is I want to know enough so that I can responsibly invest. I did take four years of a lot of effort of meeting people. And I even got involved in women's agricultural politics because I would attend their meetings and Farm Bureau and the Rice Growers Association. I mean, it was total immersion. Learn it before I put down a single penny. That's great. Again, it seems like all roads come back to knowledge, educating yourself. And then building your experience off of that knowledge, because those two things combined lead to wisdom. So, you know, you were like your father in that sense. You were out learning more about what you didn't know. I was blessed with an extraordinary role model. Yeah. I mean, I got to watch somebody who was conscientious, data-driven. Uh, to me, there are some people who study and study and study and then never act. And then there's some people who act and they haven't prepared beforehand. Right. <laughs> I had a model of somebody who did both. So I would love to say that I invented this myself, but no, I was copying a good example. That's awesome. Let's kind of tie things up here with a few minutes on your latest book, How to Be Up in Down Times. Talk about a timely title. It is not a big book. It's a quick read. I just started it and there's 40 tips and you, the way you broke it down, it's 40 tips for the soul, mind, and body. Why did you write the book? And then maybe, if you don't mind, share a few tips that you think our audience would be um, would like. <laughs> what would they... Uh... I'd adore to. For the question of why I wrote the book, the book had its, its kind of beginnings in March of this year. And you know, the lockdown was really taking hold here in Maryland. Uh, you know, in the end, I, was, I hardly stepped outside this apartment for 78 days. And so... I'm feeling down and the people I talk with are feeling down and insecure. And it's just, it's a rough time. In fact, there's studies that say people in quarantine, if they don't have the resources mental to handle quarantine, it can cause post-traumatic stress disorder, almost as if you had been through a horrible accident. In fact, I was reading this morning, a study saying a third of Americans are depressed right now. Some are even having psychoses. So being uprooted from your your regular routines, the people that you normally interact with to keep you safe and sane, it's a big deal. But I thought something that you don't know about me, but I'll now reveal. For most of my life, in addition to real estate investing, I was a science writer. I wrote a column for Scripps Howard. It went to 420 newspapers. And I also wrote for the Academy of Women's Health. And I wrote for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Wow. I have a science writer background and particularly on health. And it occurred to me, I know a lot of stuff that could be helpful to people And during these rough times. And it doesn't just have to be the quarantine, but any time when things are rough. I mentioned it to Mark Victor Hansen, and he agreed with me that you know people could use some inspiration right now. And, so, and he has a stepson, uh, Preston Weeks, and so we agreed to, like, each write about a third of it. I'll share one of the tips that I have. I'm particularly big on attitude. At least in the book, that's what I write about most of all. Mm -hmm. And there's something that Frank Perdue used to say, and that is, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. Well, in the book, I wanted to illustrate that point with a story, and it comes from Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of, of France. All, of all uh, people. <laughs> right. Okay, he's one, and the other is Mother Teresa. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte, around the 1800s, 
he was, how about the wealthiest, most powerful, most famous man in the world? He had all the wealth, power, and fame that the world has to offer. And on top of that, he had all the women. I mean, he had just the best you would think that the world has to offer. He owned it. Uh, Mother Teresa, in contrast, had a vow of humility and a vow of poverty. The material possessions that she personally owned were three cotton saris and the sandals on her feet. As big a contrast as you could get between two people. Yeah. Well, who was happier? Napoleon, and I read biographies of the two. It happened the same week I read these two biographies, and it influenced the rest of my life. And you know, I'm eager to share it, and that's one of the parts of how to be up and down times. At the end of his life, Napoleon wrote, he's in exile in St. Helena, and he, looking back on his life, he says, I can't in my mind think of five happy days. All right, Mother Teresa, at the end of her life, writes the following, my life has been a feast of unending joy. <laughs> wow. Well, amazing contrast. Yeah. Which of these people was a taker who thought that he could find happiness in wealth, power, fame, sex, all the goodies that the world has to offer? He was a taker and he was most of his life miserable. Mother Teresa took nothing but gave everything. I mean, there's a quotation from her that I just admire so much. She said that her aspiration was to be a pencil in the hand of God. Wow. In other words, her whole life was service, and her life was a feast of unending joy. So that's the kind of story that I tell in the book. Yeah. But I also have every time for another shorter tip. Quick one, sure. Yeah. Okay, I'll make it quick. I've talked with a lot of people who find that their brains just aren't as sharp during the pandemic, and I even call it pandemic brain, where you're... Maybe you can't do math in your head as fast as you once could, or you're not remembering names or dates, and it's just, you're just not sharp, and you're worried, and you're thinking, ah, Alzheimer's beginning. And I can answer that in almost every case, you don't need to worry, because science says that when you're under stress, and a quarantine is stress, that your body is just flooded with cortisol and adrenaline and all these stress hormones, which shut down your higher brain functions and make you ready for fight or flight. When you're under stress, your higher mental functions, particularly memory, just aren't as good, but they'll almost certainly come back when the stress stops. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think I was just going to say, I mean, during this pandemic, a lot of people out there are actually confused and or worried, and they need tips and guidance and advice like you're giving, if they can just put things into perspective and step back, take a breath and realize the reality and the scope of what we're dealing with, then they put things into perspective and it puts a sense of normalcy back into their life. Even if you're cooped up and you're going stir crazy at home. <laughs> so what I will say about your book, Mitzi, it's a relatively short book. Each chapter is roughly two pages. And so The 40 Tips makes it roughly about a 100-page book, plus the foreword from Mark Victor Hansen. It's a great book. I don't want this to sound like a sales pitch, but it should be. Oh, yeah, I do. Go for it. Well, okay. So download it and read it. It's on Amazon. It's, it's wherever you want to find it. Let's kind of wrap it up with two things. One, I'm just going to say I do like what Mark Victor Hansen said, and I took this out of your book. He said, we will make it through this, and as with every crisis or setback, we will be better off when it is all over. I certainly believe that. So with that, is there anything else you'd like to share? And please share with our audience how they can find out more about you and or get your books or whatever it may be. All right. The book is available on Amazon, How to Be Up in Down Times. And you know, I'd love it if you remember Mitzi Perdue, but if you don't remember Mark Victor Hansen, The Chicken Soup for the Soul Guy, because you can get to the book through either of us. And as for how to get hold of me, my website is mitziperdue.com. And if you want to contact me, there's a contact page and I commit to answer any emails that people send to me. I mean, I love communication and just adore hearing from people and answering. That's incredible. Mitzi, thank you so much for your time today. This has been very entertaining and interesting. I will put all your contact information in the show notes. We'll have this transcribed. It'll be up on our website. We'll get the video and the audio out soon. 
I look forward to speaking with you again, and I look forward to finishing your book. Uh, well, I would love nothing better than to be in contact again. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk again soon. And thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. It was an interesting interview, and I had a nice chat with her before we started recording. A wealth of information and great, great stories that she has just because of the families that she's been involved with and her upbringing, especially having grown up watching her father build a massive empire with the Sheraton hotel chain. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this episode. If you can just take one nugget, one golden lesson or tip or piece of advice or just mental shift or attitude change that can help you in your life financially, spiritually, philosophically, whatever it may be, then you're one step ahead. It was well worth the time listening to Mitzi. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you have any questions for me, just submit them on the website and remember to subscribe. Hit that button down down below on your player. Remember to visit us on iTunes or whatever audio platform you listen to us. And thanks for listening. We will see you all on our next episode. having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.